Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series brought to you today by Pivot Bio. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Pivot Bio for sponsoring today's episode. It's time to rethink nitrogen. Pivot Bio Proven replaces nitrogen fertilizer with microbes that adhere to the crop's root system and apply nitrogen each day. 2019 performance report data shows Pivot Bio Proven consistently outperforms synthetic nitrogen fertilizer year over year, providing corn growers improved yields and a more dependable nitrogen supply that isn't lost to the environment. To read the performance report, go to pivotbio.com. For more information on Pivot BioProven, text PROVEN to 31313. Having grown up on a farm, no-tiller Brian Tom of Carmi, Illinois got interested in nitrogen when he was in high school, where he did a science fair project that involved using electricity to kill nitrifying bacteria. He went on to become a mechanical engineer and later combined his mechanical know-how with a mission to keep nitrogen in the soil with the invention of the Bolt a production ag machine that sterilizes a three-inch band between cultures where fertilizer can then be applied. For this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast, I caught up with Brian by phone to talk about nitrogen and his efforts to preserve this costly input. Besides using the bolt, he's also been doing trials with the nitrogen-fixing microbes developed by Pivot Bio. Join us as he talks about running the bolt in the Tulane Nitrate Reduction Challenge, the yield bumps he's seen from both the bolt and Pivot Bio Proven, why microbes are not all created equal, and much more. Would like to tell us a little bit about your background, where you're farming, and how you got into it, and that sort of thing. Sure. Okay. Well, I grew up on a farm in central Illinois in Delavan, which is kind of between Pekin and Lincoln, just south of Peoria, and kind of expected to farm my whole life. Kind of was always involved with different things on the farm and enjoyed it very much. Then my dad passed away kind of unexpectedly, and that opportunity disappeared for us. So I kind of shifted my focus and started, I guess, maybe for the better, looking at getting a degree in mechanical engineering and getting a job in that field. So that kind of changed my focus when I was in high school, but it worked out really well. I'm glad everything turned out the way it did. So I got a bachelor's degree at the University of Illinois in mechanical engineering and then went to work for ADM in Decatur for about nine years and held various positions there, primarily with corn processing at their wet mill in Decatur. And after about nine years there, my in-laws had reached a point in their life where they wanted to retire more than they had in the past. And we decided to move down. So I'm farming with my brother-in-law now that my father-in-law fully retired. Although I don't know that you ever fully retire from farming. He, (laughs) He still helps us quite a bit. And so the farm you grew up on, was that a grain farm? Yes, we raised corn and soybeans. Okay. And the farm that you're currently working is also corn and soybeans? Yes. And we do a little bit of winter wheat. So I'm now in southeastern Illinois. So it was kind of a cultural shock <laughs> to, to move that from some really productive soils and just kind of productive communities. You're 15 miles away from major cities and there's a lot of infrastructure growing up to moving to a really remote part of the state. And the soils down here are not nearly as productive. So it's definitely more challenging to farm down here than it was growing up. Okay. And so the work that you did at ADM, has that impacted how you approach to farming at all? 
Oh, absolutely. I think it's really made me goal-oriented, kind of measuring something and trying to improve on that. That was very much kind of the corporate culture at ADM. And I think the other big thing that had changed me for the better for having worked at ADM is how formal and serious they took safety on everything and being around stuff. I mean, you grow up on a farm and you know things are dangerous, but you kind of do it the way dad did or you see grandpa doing something and they get by with it for a while. But you see a lot of near misses and a lot of injuries working at a place like ADM. So that definitely had an impact on me for kind of how I view safety and being a little more deliberate about either spending a few extra dollars to make it right or taking the time to go and get a tow rope instead of a log chain. Okay. So one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about today is nitrogen. And I understand you got interested in nitrogen back in high school and you did a whole science fair project and whatnot. Tell us what you did and what got you interested in nitrogen. Yeah, so that was just kind of an opportunity our school had to participate in science fair programs and stuff like that. So it was kind of a requirement that evolved into optional stuff in high school. But having that farm background, my dad was always kind of frustrated with the performance of NSERV. Being from central Illinois, there was a lot of fall applied and hydrous going on. And we would do some of that on our farm, but it seemed like side dressing always performed a lot better, even if we would pay the extra money for a good stabilizer. And so that kind of triggered me to explore more about how it works and why maybe it's not working and started learning a lot about different things that affect the nitrogen cycle as part of that project. And once I kind of got into it and understood how the different nitrification inhibitors work, kind of came up with the idea of using electricity to effectively kill the nitrifying bacteria and work the same as these chemical inhibitors. So, I mean, it was just kind of understanding how how different inhibitors work. They all work basically to kill the nitrifying bacteria in some way. Some kind of limit their ability to feed on nitrogen by changing the covalent bonds and the amount of food that's available in the soil. So there's three different modes of action if we get really into it on inhibitors, but they all work to basically disable the nitrifying bacteria. By studying that, I thought, well, electricity will kill bacteria too. You can use electricity to sterilize different objects and it's kind of a common practice with some medical instruments and stuff like that. Electricity in the right form at the right frequency is very effective to kill bacteria. So it was a pretty easy thought process in high school and it's of course a lot easier to kill bacteria in a cup on a lab table than it is on like a toolbar or a farm implement rolling through the field at six miles an hour. That's been the challenge. So having enough time or having enough voltage and amperage to effectively treat a space and soil is a lot different. So in high school, it was a pretty simple and it was pretty easy to carry out the testing on that, but it proved it worked. And that kind of gave hope to thinking about how could you do this at high speed. And so you did do that. You basically, this research that you did led to the creation of a tool you called the Bolt, right? Yep. So tell us about that, how it works, how much area is affected by it and whatnot. So the bolt applies a very high voltage, high frequency, but low amperage electric field to a three inch strip of soil. So it's sold as a retrofit to existing fertilizer equipment. So basically anything that farmers are using to do direct injection of any type of nitrogen fertilizer into the soil typically already has a coulter on it. So this kit just sells as a retrofit that bolts right onto the existing coulter, has like an insulation block and 
another coulter. So then you run what we call a double coulter, and it has a special non-conductive scraper that expels the dirt from between the two coulters. But we deliver electricity to the added-on coulter, and then we use the existing coulter that's on the machine as the ground. So it comes back to the toolbar through the system ground. So it's really a pretty safe design and little risk there to any of the operators. And it's low enough amperage. I wouldn't consider it immediately life-threatening, but everybody kind of responds to electricity a little bit different. If you touch a electric fence or cattle, it's not pleasant, but it typically doesn't kill you. (laughs) That's the type of electricity that we utilize. It's a low impedance, but it's more about the frequency and the voltage that is the mode of action for disabling the bacteria. Okay. And with what we know about the importance of the soil microbiome, it seems like killing all the microbes in an area would also get rid of beneficial organisms. Is that a concern? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So that is a concern. And that's been a pretty common pushback with the bolt when we go to sell it to a farmer. It's uh, definitely a concern because there's been so much focus recently on cover crops and soil biology and healthy soils and kind of going in that direction. And that's all important. And I think that's all very legitimate concerns. But what we see with the bolt, and I'm a little cautious to release. I don't know that we have data back yet from validated testing, but we always see a benefit in yield. And we're trying to understand why, especially if the theory is we're killing the good microbes too. Right now, the hypothesis is that it is a non-selective process. So you are killing the good and the bad, and you're taking control of the environment. So you're eliminating the soil-borne pathogens too, so a, a lot of crop disease. But when you kill all of the bacteria, you're releasing a lot of micronutrients back into that strip that the bacteria are otherwise consuming as food. So it has some positive agronomic impact that are short term for crop health. So when you pair this up with nitrogen and nitrogen timing, and you're treating that strip of soil for, say, potentially up to five weeks, that really lends itself to improving the nutrient availability during that V3 to V5 growth stage in corn. And we believe that's why we're seeing such positive yield impacts. But I will say soil is so resilient. And that three-inch strip that we're treating is going to be back to normal in about five weeks. You take a temporary hit on it, but I think the side effects of releasing the micronutrients and you create some biochar in that area too. So you actually manipulate the electrical conductivity of the zone and it makes it a lot more efficient to transport nutrients. There's a lot of complicated reaction going on as a side effect or trying to target the nitrifying bacteria. So I think in almost every case, the good outweighs the bad. And if farmers are really concerned about the bad, in about five weeks, it's going to be back to normal. And typically when you're doing it like in a side dress application, the host plant is selective for the beneficial bacteria to that plant. So if you're growing corn and you sterilize a strip, your corn exudates and your root exudates and the enzymes that are being released select for beneficial bacteria for the corn plant. Mm -hmm. And maybe they kind of naturally suppress some of the other bacteria. So I like to believe that we're giving that three-inch strip an advantage to repropagate with more beneficial bacteria to that specific crop. So we're trying to, within the company, trying to explain exactly the mode of action for the increase in yield because it typically does outperform the chemical inhibitors. Interesting. And so uh, side dress, that is when you would normally be using it? 
Yeah, yep. And most of our testing has been on side dress. We've got a few trials out with a pre-plant hydrus and some fall applied in hydrus, but the majority of our testing has been in side dress applications. Okay. And so are you using this in conjunction with a nitrogen inhibitor or really instead of? Mainly instead of. That's kind of the purpose of the technology is to replace the chemical inhibitors. Okay. So you can operate both for about 19 cents per acre in serve or maybe some of the other big robust nitrification inhibitors. Chemicals, I would say, cost more on the average of $10 per acre. So it's quite a bit of savings on an operating cost. Of course, there's equipment investment to buy with both. So it's hard to do an apples to apples comparison on the price, but I guess my thought process early on with it is to provide a solution that's effective enough and cheap enough, guys would run it on every acre just because it doesn't really cost them anything once they make that investment. Sure. It has the potential because of that to have a significant environmental impact as well as a pretty good return on investment. Yeah. Okay. And now are you in a watershed area that's particularly sensitive to runoff? In other words, do you have environmental reasons for being concerned about the nitrification or is it mostly about input costs? Yeah, I think for every farmer, it's always about input costs, but we are located in the uh, the Ohio Valley watershed and we're right by the Little Wabash and that goes ultimately into the Ohio River. But on our farm currently, we have farms that sit on two different smaller rivers. So that is a big concern of ours. And I think with any farmer, the concern of accidentally causing pollution, I don't think it's ever intentional, but having that accidental pollution come back on us is going to maybe result in government regulation or some sort of regulatory event. So I think guys are very aware of that. And I genuinely believe farmers don't want to cause environmental problems. They want to help the environment to help them, but they also have to consider cost with everything going on in the world today, margins are especially tight. And I think farmers are considering different things that they have to have a return on the investment. So I think it works out good when you can accomplish both. Right. And so have you done studies with the Bolt on runoffs of nitrates? Is that something that you've got data on? Yeah, yep. So we have, and I actually competed uh, with the Bolt technology in a global contest to reduce nitrate runoff. So I made it clear to the finals, I was in the top five for uh, the Tulane Nitrate Reduction Challenge. Um, And so that was kind of a fun experience, but that was a pretty robust testing process. It was just a prototype back when we ran it through that contest. But the entire goal was to measure and quantify the amount of applied nitrogen versus is the amount that ran off mm-hmm. and to provide the most reduction in that. So we've got a lot of testing uh, that was all set up by kind of like an independent judging panel comprised of several doctorates from universities around the country. So there was a lot of research done specifically for our impact on runoff that year. What sort of quantification are you seeing or have you seen? (laughs) Well, yeah, so it's hard to put a number on it because there's so many different ways to measure it. I don't want to give you a political answer here. But (laughs) But you're gonna. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, it's 10% reduction in runoff is a safe number if we had to put a number on it. But the way you measure that is very different in the way the environment impacts your ability to run off nitrogen fertilizer is different every year. 
So that's why I'm hesitant to say, for example, in that contest or whatever, it was around 10% reduction. But the next year, you might only see a 3% reduction. But then the next year, you might see a 15% reduction. The way the nitrification cycle and the nitrogen cycle, for that matter, works and interacts with not only the temperature and rainfall, but the growing conditions and all of that with the crop, when the crop is going to be using the nitrogen, it can get very complicated. So by just delaying your application by five days might also have a 10% reduction on runoff. So you can overlap a lot of different practices and a lot of different factors that can have a significant impact on that. So I would love to claim that it's all the bolt, but (laughs) it is a lot more complicated than just that. I feel strongly that it helps. We'll get back to my conversation with Brian Tom in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Pivot Bio, for supporting today's episode. It's time to rethink nitrogen. Pivot Bio Proven replaces nitrogen fertilizer with microbes that adhere to the crop's root system and apply nitrogen each day. 2019 performance report data shows Pivot Bio Proven consistently outperforms synthetic nitrogen fertilizer year over year, providing corn growers improved yields and a more dependable nitrogen supply that isn't lost to the environment. To read the performance report, go to pivotbio.com. For more information on Pivot Bio Proven, text PROVEN to 31313. Now let's get back to Brian Tom as he explains why a wet 2019 resulted in better than expected yields in one trial. So now I understand you've been doing some trials with Pivot Bioproven, which is a microbe. So tell us what you've been doing and what kind of results you've been seeing with that. Yeah, so that's been an exciting technology too in the world of nitrogen. And I guess I should mention I first got introduced to their technology and their product as a competitor. They were also in the finals of the contest. Oh, interesting. That's where I learned about it and got in on some of the very first field trials that they had on Farmer's Field. Uh So this is really, I guess, the fourth year that we've been using a product of theirs of some extent and seeing the results firsthand. So it's an incredible technology too. And even though I competed against them, it's something I wanted to use on our farm. So what their technology is, is a microbe that grows on the corn root and it pulls nitrogen gas out of the atmosphere and produces ammonia. So it's very efficient. It's the right source of nitrogen and it's right at the root and it's not going to wash away. It just produces a little bit every day. It doesn't meet the crop's needs, but everything that it does produce, I feel pretty confident that the plant is consuming all of it. There's like zero opportunity for waste when you feed the crop like that. So you're talking about eliminating the need for stabilizers or eliminating the need for so much reliance on synthetic nitrogen and also at the same time improving plant health because you're feeding it a little bit every day. It's always got some nitrogen available. You don't go through deficient times like you would with synthetic nitrogen. If you get delayed because of the weather or you get a major rain event and you're waterlogged for five days when you're needing nitrogen, it has some positive benefits to it by spoon feeding the corn nitrogen every day. Okay. And I gather you have seen some yield bumps as a result of using this? 
Yeah, absolutely. Because it's a biological, there's some product stewardship that's a little bit different than most ag inputs that are important. You've got living microbes in a jug, so it's storing it and handling it. The product is a little more sensitive to that than like your herbicides or pesticides would be. So there's a little bit to learn with it, but for the most part, we've been really successful in our trials with it. I would say we see anywhere from a four to six bushel increase with it pretty much every year. Last year was a crazy year for us, and we saw over a 30 bushel increase with wow. it. So we had like record rainfall events, like one after the other. We were so wet last year. We had so much denitrification and leaching <laughs> and probably runoff too. Right. I mean, we had major events last year. So And then we also had abundant water for the corn to grow. So the corn really took off if you could keep it well fed. So we had a really positive experience with it last year, but I don't expect that type of result every year. That was an unusual year, but it really uh, showed us the potential and the capabilities and kind of solidified our confidence in how it's working and that it is, in fact, working. It's something that's kind of hard to see and it's hard to measure and quantify. And so just explain, are you using it in conjunction with your normal nitrogen program then, or are you able to cut back on nitrogen inputs at all? Yeah, so we're still kind of learning how it's going to best fit on our farm. I like to use it to kind of tackle my high-end yield potential without being wasteful or over-applying synthetic nitrogen and having that potential to have excess leaching or denitrification and having that environmental impact that we're always concerned with. So I kind of saw it as a neat product to try to tackle the top end potential without any negative environmental impact. But we have been doing every year a reduced application plot to see if it will kind of replace some of our synthetic nitrogen. And in every case, we've shown that it's been able to displace about 25 pounds of synthetic nitrogen. So that's something we're definitely considering and looking at for input costs and how to balance and maximize our return on investment for it. Okay. So okay. Um, I don't have a real solid answer there. Sure. We're still learning how it's going to best fit our duration, but we are trying both ways with it. And I think it's good for the environment either way. We're not only reducing potential leaching or denitrification, we're also, there's some impact on reducing the amount of energy consumed in the synthetic fertilizer production if we're truly displacing 25 pounds of synthetic fertilizer. So there's some opportunity there. It goes beyond just what our farm sees. Oh, yeah. Okay. So have you seen any other unexpected changes from using Pivot BioProven or any differences in your soil tests or anything like that? No, pretty much everything that we see when we've done a lot of testing on it over the past few years and everything that we are seeing that's different with it is expected. I mean, there hasn't been anything terribly unexpected, but we are measuring like 30 to 40 more pounds of nitrogen, the plant, when you look at the stock and the grain. At first, they were kind of advertising it as a 25-pound product, but when you kind of think about what that means, if you're putting on 25 pounds of synthetic fertilizer, they say anywhere from 40 to 50% of it 
can be lost to right. leaching or denitrification. So really to get 25 pounds to the plant, you've got to be adding like 40 pounds of synthetic nitrogen to get 25 pounds available to the plant. So it kind of makes sense. We're seeing that 30 to 40 extra pounds when they measure stock nitrates and grain nitrates okay. compared to the other way. So because of the form of nitrogen and placement of it, I yeah. think it's nearly 100% efficient. Gotcha. What sort of acreage are you using this on? So this year we ran it on half of our farm and a little over half of our farm actually. And I think in the future, we're strongly considering running it on most of our acres. I don't know if we'll ever get to a hundred percent. It gets a little tricky with planting. It seems like we always have a few fields that are up in the air on if we're going to shift to soybeans or shift some more acres to corn. And it, because it's a biological product, the storing and handling is a little bit harder to change your mind on a Monday morning and get the product <laughs> by Tuesday and, oh, yeah. <laughs> and do something. So I'd like to see us at 90% or better. I don't know if we could get to 100% of our planned acres. I should put it that way. So what is that limitation with the lifespan of it? Is it shelf life? Yeah, so it's got a, a definite finite shelf life. And they're playing with the formulation and making things better all the time and trying to increase that. But right now, it's good for approximately two to three months. I think if you store it at the right temperature, you can achieve three-month shelf life. It's not anything that's too difficult to handle, but the past two years, the springs that we've had, I'd like to be planting corn in April, and it seems like we're planting more corn in June than we are yeah. April. So right. we're pushing the temperature, getting things warm, and the window on getting it in our shed and ready to go. The past couple springs have proven challenging, but yeah. if we could ever get back to a little more normal, <laughs> I think the shelf life is not too big of a concern. Right. So. Okay. So Pivot Bio Proven, when I read about it, I was under the impression it was really a microbe for corn, but mm -hmm. I think I read that you have used it in wheat as well. Yep. So they've got a product that they're working on for wheat and it's going to be coming out soon. I think it'll be available this fall for winter wheat. Okay. So it was something that I was using like as an experimental trial. They've partnered with Intent Farmer Trials mm -hmm. to advance some of their new pipeline products, stuff like that. So it's got like a uniform protocol across all farms in the country that are doing these replicated trials. So I was fortunate enough to participate in a wheat trial and we were really pleased with the results that we saw. I think we had like a a 15 or 17 bushel increase in wheat. Oh, wow. So it, it seems great in wheat. Yeah. And we struggle to manage nitrogen in our winter wheat. It seems like we get a lot of big rainfall events in March and April, and it's hard to get the wheat going fast enough and get the application timely enough on it. So it seems like we tend to struggle a little more with uh, nitrogen efficiency on our wheat. So. Okay. Now, when I was originally looking at the research on Pivot Bio Proven, I guess I came to understand, I think, that the microbes die basically because the plant dies. I mean, the senescence stops feeding the microbes and that's why they, they die off. Is that yeah. essentially? Yep. Yes. So depending on the type of crop that the microbe is designed for, it needs a host 
to sure. live. So it doesn't just stay dormant in the soil. It okay. has to have a plant to live. And that's one of the challenges with it. You've got to have like an infero system. You've got to be able to squirt this microbe directly onto the seed. Mm-hmm. And then once that, and that microbe has to kind of survive in its formulation until the corn plant gets growing and it can adhere. And then it will colonize if you get one microbe successfully adhered to the root they'll start to colonize on the root and repropagate from there. But making that handoff from the product in the box to the growing plant is kind of a critical window. And it's a microbe, it's a living thing, so it behaves like most soil microbes do. And cold and wet is typically not real conducive to vigorous microbial activity. So there's some challenges there to getting effective efficacy onto the seed, but they've done a lot of different testing and the inferro formulation and it tank mixes with a lot of the inferro products pretty well. And I think they're continuing to do a lot of testing on what's out there and what people are tank mixing it with and trying to understand if there's a situation where it just didn't work, did it die because of a insecticide or a micronutrient like copper, for example, is extremely poisonous to microbes. And so it kind of sterilizes your starter fertilizer if you're adding a micronutrient pack with copper in it, or if you're cutting your starter fertilizer with city water with chlorine in it. That is why they add chlorine to the water is to to keep the bacteria out. There's stuff like that that it's different and it's something you got to pay attention to that most guys haven't previously paid attention to. Mm -hmm. And so will you go out in your field and like dig up a sample plant and test to see if those microbes are out there and colonizing? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So we've okay. done a lot of that. We send it off to Pivot Bio's lab in Berkeley and okay. they do a lot of colonization testing. And I believe they're working on making that maybe a little easier or simpler to do like an infield type of test kit for something there. But we definitely dig up roots and make sure that we have good colonization and send it back to them. And they have the ability to test and check for that specific microbe. And I guess I should mention too, that this microbe is like a naturally occurring microbe that they found in the state of Missouri. Mm -hmm. And I need to be careful how I say it. It's not genetically modified, but it is genetically edited to kind of perform better. So it's kind of in full speed and full production all the time instead of just when it senses special triggers like the natural occurring microbe would need. So it's a natural microbe and then it's been edited so that it kind of ramped up every day to produce nitrogen. Yeah. And I gather they've tested it in many states and far north is Minnesota. (laughs) And so it can Mm -hmm. survive in a lot of different climates. Yeah. Yep. And I think In general, with nitrogen products, the soils and the areas where you struggle with nitrogen efficiency is where this product has had the greatest yield increases. So it makes sense where people are losing nitrogen to leaching and maybe a sandier type of soil. This product is going to perform better because it essentially doesn't leach away. So, you know, that's where it really shines. In the central Illinois, the high organic matter, the really great soil, it's still has a positive impact, but I don't think you're going to see as many of the double-digit yield responses in that type of setting. Oh, okay. So, I see. So, have you personally experienced any failures with the product? 
Yeah, we've had some issues with handling. We let some this year get a little too warm just sitting in our shed. Mm -hmm. And it's got like a pre-mixed with microbe food in the jug. And if you get it warm, they get more active and run through their food supply a lot faster. We've had some issue with that and they were good about replacing the product right away. That was a pretty easy process. Uh, They've been really good about standing behind their product. And I've been really impressed by that. For a young company and a new company, they've really taken their quality very seriously. And then I think the very first year we used it, to me, it looked a little bit wavy in the field. Like you could see it working in spots and maybe not in others. And I don't know if we didn't get it mixed correctly or and their formulation has changed several times. So in that case was one of the very early formulations. And it was like mixing a dry microbe with a nutrient pack and then filtering that and then adding that to your starter fertilizers. So there was a lot of opportunity for human error in that. I think any of the failures we've seen have been centered around the stewardship side of the product and our interaction with it. Have you used any other quote-unquote bugs and jugs products, uh, microbials? Yeah, yep. So we've actually tried some stuff. I think it's called bugs in a jug. (laughs) We didn't see great results for it. That's probably why I'm not recalling the name of it. I think that's kind of the stigma with biologicals and ag. It seemed like maybe 10 years ago, some new stuff came out and it got pretty popular fast and Mm. the results were kind of lackluster and there were more negative experiences than there were positive experiences. And that's been my perception of biologicals at least. And then we've run some like quick routes from Montana or I guess Bayer now and their B300 on decalp corn and we've been very pleased with the performance of all of that. We definitely experiment around with other stuff but I think every company has a product out there and I believe that they have a good product and that their results are real but I think they're designed to fix a problem and if you aren't having that specific problem their product's not going to do anything for you. So kind of trying to decipher between do I need this product or how is it going to help me? There's a lot of people out there selling it on kind of a blanket ticket that this will help you no matter what. I don't know that that's necessarily the case, but with the Pivot Bio Microbe, it's pretty radically different from any other biological that's out there in the fact that it is producing nitrogen for your plant. So, and it's feeding it on the root of your plant where the plant is designed to take up its nutrient load. So it's feeding it the right stuff in the right place. So any other advances around the corner? Yeah, so we've got some trials this year with Pivot Bio's second generation of product, which is trying to target more of like a 50-pound type of product. They're definitely into their next generation. I think their goal is to land like a 100-pound product. So if we could get to 100 pounds per acre reliably with a microbe, that's a pretty big game changer in our industry. That's going to have a significant impact on environmental challenges as well as logistically how we operate on our farm with applying nitrogen. Yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah, so that's kind of in the pipeline for them. And I think it kind of in the pipeline for Bowdoin for the Bolt, we're looking at a lot of different applications of putting the Bolt technology on planters. So right now our focus has been on nitrification inhibition. And we can do a lot of neat things for young seedling health when you plant seeds into a sterile strip of soil. You can eliminate a lot of really nasty diseases in that 
feed zone, which has been like the target of some of the seed treatments that are on there right now. So that's kind of the next new area that's in the pipeline for Bowdoin and the Bolt technology too. So I'm pretty excited about that. And we're already experimenting with it on vegetable crops. And it's been a really good performer on like transplanting tomatoes and providing a sterile strip of soil to put a transplanted tomato plant into. And just circling back real quick on the bolt and doing it at side dress. So you're not doing it close enough to the root of the plant that it would affect the roots? Yeah. Yep. So we're typically in side dress application, you're in the middle of the row, or at least you try to be. That's far enough away, especially running on the coulter. The coulters are only going about three to four inches deep anyways, and it's parabolic electric field. So we're treating up to six inches with a four inch deep coulter, but the knife and hydrus is running at about six inches deep anyways. So it's not going to be any more detrimental than you're physically pulling a knife through the soil and Mm -hmm. chopping the roots. If you get into some really late side dressing, it's the normal amount of damage that you would do anyways. (laughs) Try to side dress early and you don't have any damage, but if you're getting really late, you could prune some roots or something with that, but it won't kill the plant by any means. It's a local electric field between the coulters. If you put the plant between the cultures, you could kill the plant. And electricity, too, has the opportunity to be used to kill weed Mm -hmm. as well. But there's a lot of other players in that space right now and a lot of different opportunities in organic. That hasn't been a major focus for Bowdoin because of that. There is some potential there to do something with it. Okay, great. Well, hey, that was all my questions. This was really interesting. I really appreciate everything. Happy to have the opportunity. I enjoy it. Thanks so much, Brian. All right. Thank you. Talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks to Brian Tom for this conversation about keeping nitrogen in place in the soil. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Pivot Bio, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.